3: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So we're coming up shortly on the anniversary of one of America's most infamous crimes, the axe murder of the Moore family in Stillinger, girls, which likely happened sometime after midnight on June tenth, nineteen twelve, in Vallisca, Iowa. In this first part of a three-part interview with Dr. Ed Epperly. He walks us through the horrific crime scene, the bizarre evidence left behind, and the beginnings of the investigation. Part two, which will be next week, focuses on suspect F.F. F. Jones, Joe Moore's enemy. And part three, the week of the anniversary, is all about the very strange Reverend Lynn George Kelly, who would ultimately be tried for the murders. Also addressed in the third episode is suspect Paul Mueller, who is the subject of a past episode of Most Notorious. He is known as the man from the train. I hope you enjoy this episode, and let's begin. And by the way, this episode contains some graphic language, adult themes, listener discretion is highly advised. I'm very excited to have as my guest today, Ed Epperly. He first began researching the 1912 vallisca Iowa axe murders while back in college. He traveled to Vallisca for the first time in 1955 to interview Dr. Cooper, the first physician to examine both the victims and the crime scene. He recently retired as professor of education at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, and he is here today to talk about his book, Fiend Incarnate, Villisca Axe Murders of 1912. Great to have you here. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity.
3: Yes. Well, Well, I've got to say, it's rare that I get a chance to speak to someone who has spent so much time on a case in their lifetime. Um give us a, a little bit of an idea of your journey if you would, researching and writing about this case
1: um, some people have said it's an obsession and I suppose it is to some degree but uh, I went there uh, as a college student in the mid 1950s um, I was uh, I grew up about a hundred miles from Boisska uh, and then uh, so I'd heard of it as a child and uh, when I got to college, uh, I and a couple of friends, uh, we were seniors now and getting ready to graduate. We take, took a course in Iowa history. We were both, uh, we were all three actually uh, history majors. And so um, we thought if we approached our instructor and made a pitch, maybe we could do a joint paper and go out somewhere and do some real research, try to find some documents uh, rather than just doing library research. And so we persuaded them it's a good idea, and so we went to Velisca. At that time, we were able to uh, interview several people. We, uh, as you mentioned b- briefly in the introduction, that uh, we talked to Dr. Cooper, who was the first doctor on the scene. We talked to uh, uh, Oscar Winstrom, who was the um, uh, prosecuting attorney at the Kelly trial. The, those types of people. I talked to a sister. Of the murdered girls, the Stillinger girls who had been murdered, and uh, went back, wrote her paper. Uh, I just, I got fascinated by the case and continued to, I suppose you would say, a kind of a hobby approach, where I would work with it for a while, and uh, we stumbled on the axe and got con- uh, got control of the axe about in the nineteen sixties, and held it for forty years, and then finally presented it to the uh, Felisky Historical Society. They really aren't equipped to display it or protect it, and so it's on loan to the State of Iowa Historical Society in Des Moines. Uh, Gradually, I I amassed more and more information, and pretty soon I attracted minor attention. Uh, They did a Iowa Public Television did a little show about uh, events in Iowa, and Velisca made the cut. And uh, so we went there and did a tour of the town and the courthouses where the trials took place and things like that. And only in the last 20 years have I thought about writing a book. And it took me nearly 20 years to do that, but we finally got it done, and uh, it was released in November of this year, past year.
3: That has to be an interesting story, how you got a hold of the axe.
1: Well, the, um, <laughs> I um, was reading a, uh, an account in the uh, Des Moines Register in 1945, in which they um, had a picture of a man holding the axe, uh, James Risden. Uh, he was, uh, had been, for a number of years, the director of the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation. At the time of the murder, he was a state investigator. They didn't have a Bureau of Criminal Investigation. The Attorney General in Iowa had a group of investigators that he could send out. But uh, one of the uh, effects of the Velisca murder was uh, the fact that the state of Iowa decided to establish a permanent investigative arm, which is in uh, an independent group. that I believe it's now the DCI, the Department of Criminal investigation, but it was BCI until then. Well, Risden was holding the axe, and the article said that uh, the axe was in the possession of James N. Risden, who was retired head of that. My um, friend that I was working with on this, he was in Des Moines, and so I gave him a call and uh, I said, this, this guy's in Des Moines, why don't you give a call and see if he's still there and if he has the axe? And he did, and he got an elderly lady who said, oh no, he, he died. Uh, uh, I'm his widow. Well, we saw that he had the axe in 1945. Would you still have it? She said, yes, I do. It's in the closet upstairs. Gives me the willies. It's a horrid thing. And would you sell it? Oh, I'll give it away. And so <laughs> oh, my gosh. friend Don Brown, who is deceased now, he, uh, he went to her house and uh, Offered to pay her for it, she refused. He took it. Uh, after a week, he got thinking about the fact that I I need more as evidence. That it is the authentic axe, and so he um, took a notary public down, and she signed a notarized statement that it was the axe. And I think he felt a bit guilty in not giving her anything for it, so he gave her as a gift a, co- a box of chocolate-covered cherries. Uh Don had it for a number of years, and then he left the state and kind of terminated his work on the case, and I was still plodding along, so I took over the axe, and I had it in my home for 20 years, I suppose. And then finally, after the movie Velisca Living with a Mystery came out, I had been a consultant with them, I gave the axe to the Velisca Historical Society, and... Uh, they were not able to uh, take care of it, so they um, put it on loan to the uh, State Historical Society in Des Moines. So, I don't think it's on display, but it's there, and uh, Volisca could or could not take it, off, take it back, depending on their staffing and things like that.
3: Wow, fascinating. L- let's travel now to Villisca, Iowa. In nineteen twelve, C- can you tell us the kind of place it was?
1: Sure, Velisca was not the county seat. It was in the edge of the county. It's on the far southeast corner of Man- of uh, Montgomery County, Iowa. Red Oak is the county seat, which is about thirteen miles to the west. Uh, Velisca town of two thousand at that time. It-, it was a typical farm support com- uh, community. It, it provided farmers with the uh, support they needed to operate their farms. Yeah, there was no substantial industry in the town. Uh, there was a uh, Tyler. <laughs> Tyler was originally a uh, sold coal and he sold ice. And because he sold ice, he started uh, selling some ice cream and he um, uh, developed a, a line of pop Uh, He later uh, uh, got the Coca-Cola franchise for that area and uh, was a relatively wealthy man. moved to Texas, but um, that was the primary industry in the town. But they had the usual number of—they had four doctors, they had uh, a dentist, they had uh, active churches, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, a small Catholic church— a small Baptist church, I believe. It's on the main line of the CBNQ Railroad, which is now uh, Santa Fe, um, Burlington Northern Santa Fe. And it, that's the Amtrak line that runs through Iowa. It's in far southwest Iowa. It's about 20, 25 miles from Missouri and about maybe 50 miles from uh, Nebraska. So it's in the corner of the state. Uh, I believe I said about 2,000 uh, people lived there. It has a town square, uh, not uh, not a courthouse square. The courthouse is in Red Oak, of course, uh, but it, it was a nice open area. When the murders occurred, the bodies were brought up to the uh, city hall, which is just across the street from the square, where they were prepared. They were open to the public on the day of the funeral, which was Wednesday after the Monday murder, but they were not open. All of the victims had been uh, disfigured by being struck in the head with an axe, an obvious reason, and uh, they um, did not open the coffins. Uh, Joe Moore, the, the, the husband of the family, uh, he uh his mother was elderly and still alive joe was 43 at the time of the murder and uh, she she came and wanted to see him and they refused to open the coffin uh, he he had been the the worst uh mutilated of any of the victims but they uh, they brought his they did open the coffin but they kept the body covered they brought his arm out from under the covering and she sat and held his hand for an extended period of time in the hours before the funeral. And then they were brought across the street into the city park and they estimated a crowd of uh, 5,000 people of uh, two and a half times the size of the town uh, had gathered in the park for the funeral. Then they were loaded on uh, Uh, Hearst, horse-drawn. Hearst, of course, in 12. And uh, they had to use spring wagons for some. There were eight victims of the murder, six of them children under 12. So they had to uh, have uh, several vehicles. And the the cemetery is on the order of uh, half a mile north of the uh, town square. And so everyone went out to the cemetery. The Moors were all buried in the same grave. They had separate caskets, but they had opened a large pit grave and put them side by side. And now if you go to the cemetery, there is a very large granite stone, it just says Moore, and then a long, narrow stone that runs across the top of the grave with each of the Moore victims listed.
3: So it was Joe Moore, his wife Sarah. Would you walk us through the members of the Moore family, and tell us the kind of business Joe Moore was in.
1: Sure. Well, let's look at the victims first, and then I'll go back and and give you a little background. Uh, Joe Moore, as I said, was uh, 43. Uh, He was a businessman. He operated a um, farm implement store and a hardware store combined. And uh, his wife was Sarah Moore. She was 39, I think. And then... uh, They had four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. Paul was the youngest at five. Boyd was seven. Catherine was 10. And um, Herman was, I believe, 12. He had just turned 12 recently. Then there were two more victims, uh, Lena and Ina Stillinger. Uh, Lena was uh, the oldest, and she was 11. And uh, Ina was she was a week away from being nine when she was murdered. They had they had come in the uh, the, the murder was on Sunday night the ninth the, um, of June, nineteen twelve. It might have been the ninth it's possible it was after midnight, and then it would have been the tenth of June. It was discovered on the tenth. But Lena and Ina had come in to a children's day service at the Presbyterian church. And the Moors, Catherine were, was a good friend, and so they went to church with Catherine. In the afternoon, they stayed in town because they were having children's service at night, which was at the end of the Sunday school year, and it was designed to let the, the youngsters of the church Oh, they read Bible verses and they sang songs and they put on a little, little uh, playlist and things like that. And so they, at supper time, had uh, asked the Moors if they would call home to see if they could stay overnight with Catherine. And they got uh, Blanche, uh, the sister, an older sister named Blanche, and they lived about a mile and a half out in the country. And Blanche said, sure, that would be fine. They could come home Monday morning with the schoolteacher who walked right by the house. And so um, they were there just as visitors, uh, completely uh, coincidental that they were murdered because the the killer ended up killing the entire eight and so on.
3: So it was a woman named Mary Peckham, right, who was the first to notice something awry on the morning of June 10th. Uh,
1: That's right. Uh, The murder house is about a block north of the square and then about three blocks east of the square. And it's on the southeast corner of that square, that block. And just to the west was the Peckham House, and Mary was sixty-three and not in ill health, and she noticed she was doing the Monday morning wash. Had started about five thirty, probably, and uh, at along about seven thirty, she began to get suspicious that something was wrong at the moors next door. It, it's really quite close, about thirty feet. I suspect between the two houses, that no one had gone to the privy. They they didn't have indoor plumbing. Uh, no one had been in the yard. They had a barn behind the house, a small barn, and they had a a cow and some chickens and a horse, and the animals had not been fed. And she got concerned enough that she went to the house and went from window to window trying to peer in. And that was frustrated by the fact the blind, the shades had been pulled clear down to the sill so she couldn't see in. Doors were locked. She knocked on the doors. Nobody responded. So she called um, Ross Moore. Ross Moore was Joe's brother. Uh, he was a, um, had a drugstore uptown. So Ross came down. She also called Joe's store, and uh, he, uh, a man named Ed Selly, who was a clerk in the hardware store, came down too. And he, he did some of the chores, fed the animals, things like that. Well, Rossmore had a skeleton key. There are two doors on the porch. One leads to the faces west and the other faces north. And he let himself in, went across the front parlor. He's walking north now and pushed open the door to a small spare bedroom in the um, front, off the front parlor. And uh, he could see two figures lying in bed. Uh, and they were uh, covered up, the cover pulled completely over their faces, and he could see blood on the bedstead behind them, so he knew it was something was wrong. And he let himself out and uh, sent um, word uptown. Uh, they had telephones in those days, of course, so there a telephone call, and to get the marshal. And Ed Selly uh, had gone uptown and he got Hank Horton who was the marshal had just come on duty. It was now probably a quarter after eight. The the times are approximate but uh, they're pretty close I think. And Ed Selly and Hank Horton came down and he said, what's the trouble Ross? Ross was still standing on the porch and Ross said, I think something terrible has happened in there. And so uh, Horton went in the door, the the, uh, west facing door and uh, he and Ed Selly went across the front parlor Horton said it was, a, it was dark as night I, I couldn't see a, uh, a thing so I struck a match uh, it was so dark because the killer had taken a uh, black skirt, tore it in half and put it again uh, over the windows in the door the front door had windows and they were pinned up, the skirt was pinned over it, so we are getting no light in the windows, no light in the uh, door glass and he went into that room downstairs, pulled back the covers. He first went across and raised a shade and got some light. He pulled back the covers, and here was, he couldn't identify them. He thought it was either a girl and a woman, or it was a girl and a larger girl. It proved to be a larger girl. The bed ran north and south. Currently, it's open as a museum, and they have the bed running east and west. I'm not sure why they did that, but it's very clearly that the bed was running north and south. And um, each of the victims had a face cloth over it, and then the covers pulled over that. And they'd been struck in the head with an axe. Serious damage, of course. But it looked like they had only been struck once, and it looked like they had been struck with the butt of the axe, not the blade. The girl on the east, that would have been Lena, she was about, near, she was about she was 11, she had been pulled about a third of the way down in the bed. She was lying on her right hip, rotated at the waist with her shoulders flat on the bed. Uh, her undergarment had been removed, was sewn under the bed. Uh, her nightgown had been pushed up above her waist, and her left leg had been brought up over her right leg so that she was sexually exposed. Uh, uh, it was obviously a, a display. There's some controversy. Her, her one arm was over her head, and some people say that she had a cut on her arm but uh, that was not the case um i uh, for one thing the arm the hand was lying in a pool of blood at the head of the bed even though she was down so it looks she was struck when she was at the head of the bed not pulled down the bed some thought she had awakened and tried to duck under the blow and slid down the bed but it looks to me like she's pretty clearly pulled The cut on her arm disappeared when they were preparing the body, and they washed the body, and it proved to be blood, but there was no cut. She had picked that up from the other blood. In the room itself, it's a very small room, uh, the axe was leaning up against the south wall. It had been cleaned. The killer had taken a cloth and, and wiped it, but there was still blood and hair adhering to the axe. Well, it was leaning there, so there's no question that it was the murder weapon. Along the east wall was a lyre-back dresser, two-door, I think, might have three-door dresser. It had a large mirror that was in the lyre part of the dresser, and that mirror had been draped with a, a black skirt, uh, probably taken out of the dresser itself. Uh, looked to me like uh, there are photographs uh, in the book that I wrote. Uh, there is a photograph of that dresser and the covering of it. It uh, looked like the killer rather casually threw it. the The front windows were carefully pinned up so that they were uh, no. There was no light getting out through the front window uh, through the front window and the door. But in this case, it looked like the motivation was different. Uh, part of the window, was, part of the mirror was not covered, and uh, so on. Uh, there was a lamp at the foot of the bed on the right side of the bed when you come in the room, where the Stillinger girl was displayed, and the chimney had been removed and was under the uh, dresser. There was a gold watch on the dresser, and a piece of watch chain was found lying on the floor. Uh, that proved to be Joe's watch and chain. It was broken, probably torn from his clothing or something. And uh, then there was a four-pound piece of slab bacon that had been uh, placed in either cheesecloth or a dish towel, wrapped up, and was leaning against the wall beside the axe. Well, they, they, they stepped out of the room and uh, Horton, the marshal, said, well, come on, Ed, we'll go upstairs. And uh, Sully, who was just a, a private citizen accompanying him, said, not me, I'm not going. And he went out on the porch to wait what the marshal found.
3: We will be back in a moment.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
4: and jethro box of oddities that is really
0: mysterious join cat and jethro gilligan toth for the strange the bizarre the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities
2: the webby award-winning box of oddities podcast from airwave media
4: hi i'm matt albers host of the pirate history podcast the men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates we examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
3: And we have returned. So he went up Alone? He
1: went up alone. Uh, le- well, let me just carry you through the rest of the scene, and then we can see where you want to go from there. When Sally left, that le- that left uh, uh, Horton at the foot of the steps. It's an S-curve stairway. It's very narrow. goes west for two or three steps and then up, and then turns west again at the top of the steps. There's no hallway upstairs. The um, stairway... It's directly into the parents bedroom joe and sarah their bed was running east and west a north window the uh, marshal horton went over and raised that blind there was a large lamp stand in that window or in that room and uh, it was not lit none of the lamps were lit when uh, horton got there the killer had left everything dark The uh, Joe was was on the south side of the bed or the left side of the bed when you left the stairway and entered the room. And Sarah was to the north or the right side of the bed. It's a small house. It's a gabled house. So You have the walls go up maybe four feet and then angle in. And then there's a flat ceiling at the very top of the room. The bed was pushed under that gable where it came down. And uh, both of the parents had been very severely mutilated. Uh, n- no blow in the house, and any of the victims, was below the chin. All of the blows were to the head. And Joe, starting at the chin, everything was gone, uh, except the very back cap of his skull, and uh, there, so there was, no, there was no face remaining or anything. Sarah had been hit on top of the head with the, the butt of the axe, but it then the killer struck her with the blade. She was the only one that some people have argued that uh, one of the Stillinger girls was hit with the blade of the axe, but that's undetermined. But uh, she was definitely struck uh, with a series of blows across the face, reducing it to, in the words of... Uh, Dr. Williams uh, a series of slices about an inch wide. The killer, when he swung the axe, had hit the ceiling. Looks like he hit it on the backswing. When he came back, he he hit the ceiling, and there was plaster plaster dust had fallen on the uh, bedclothes. They, they They were covered with a face cloth, and the bedclothes pulled over the bodies completely, until they had to they had to be uncovered pretty strong evidence that the killer came to that that bed to those people twice or at least more than once because um sarah's shoes were on the south side of the bed and joe when he was struck he bled and the blood ran across the pillow and dropped into one of her shoes and it was nearly filled with blood and then Later, it had been turned over, and blood had dripped on the sole of the shoe. And uh, by the time the house was opened at about 8.30 or later in the morning, uh, the blood had all congealed, and so there was no flowing blood at that time, so it had to have happened then. So there had to be time for the, uh, the blood to fill the shoe, and then it got turned over and more blood fell on it. And the second thing, reason that we, we believe, or I believe, that uh, uh, the killer visited him twice, that the cuts that he made in Sarah's face had no blood in it. The, the heart had obviously stopped working, and the blood had pooled uh, by gravity. And so they that's one reason why not too many people noticed or made much about that, just the doctors, because uh, she looked reasonably normal when you're just sitting there because her face was there, but it, it was not bloody. But it would open up like an accordion if you wanted to, and uh, there was no blood in those wounds. Then the, the killer went into the south room, and in the south room, Herman, the oldest boy, was on a cot against the east wall and at the southeast corner of the room Catherine, uh, the ten-year-old uh, she was in the southeast corner of the room in a small bed and Boyd and Paul the two younger boys were in the northwest corner of the room consequently the center of the room was open and there was a, a smattering of toys and uh, stuffed animals, things that kids of that age would would play with. They had all been struck in the head. It looked like they had only been struck once, uh, that the axe did tremendous damage, but it it wasn't the case that they were mutilated in the way that their mother and father had been. The killer had also struck the ceiling in that room, but it was different. Uh, That was measured, and uh, those cuts were uh, seven feet above the floor and consequently, it's doubtful that a person swinging the axe in a normal manner where the the arm is below the shoulder, uh, the axe would have reached the ceiling. So the, a forensic expert from Leavenworth Penitentiary arrived in town the second day. That would have been on Tuesday. <laughs> he got to town. He had to be helped off the train. He was so drunk. And they took him to a, uh, a local hotel. They said it took about six hours to sober him up. And then he, he did a rather complete survey of the murder scene the day after the murder. And uh, he measured those cuts. And in his judgment, the killer was left-handed, the way that the cuts had entered the ceiling. And they were cuts from the blade of the axe. There is no doubt about that. And so he, he, he then speculated how could a person hit the, the ceiling at that height. And so they, um, he reasoned that the killer was holding the axe in one hand. And he speculated that he was dancing around the room in a frenzy of excitement, swinging the axe over his head and had hit the ceiling during that. And partly the reason he concluded that was because none of those blows in the ceiling would have hit any of the victims in the room. They were around the edge of the room. He was out in the middle of the room, and they just would not have reached any victim. So he thought there was a kind of a of a excitement. The, the killer was in a frenzy and swinging the axe one-handed no one was in the room with the killer uh, that's speculation in that sense but uh, it seemed reasonable to me at least he was looking for fingerprints didn't find any but uh, fingerprint development was very young at that time he had gone to scotland yards in in london and uh, been taught fingerprinting and now as a specialist in leavenworth federal penitentiary he was uh, building a uh, fingerprint collection, uh, those victims were all covered with a face cloth, and uh, then the bed covers pulled over, them. that seemed to be a uh, standard element of the scene.
3: Why do you think there was so much anger directed at the parents?
1: It's very uh, (laughs) difficult. It's out of my field, for one thing. It generally doesn't restrict me from talking like everyone else. Uh, The... I, I did, I've had no psychiatric training or anything like that. Uh, I did some ed psychology. I was a school teacher. And so I'm not very well prepared to answer that question. But uh, I've thought about it a lot over the years. And a lot of people have raised, in what I've given presentations, have raised uh, that question in one form or another. Uh, I think that's a, a significant factor of the scene. Uh, it seemed to me that it involved uh, one of two possible factors. One, it could be that there was a a, a rage within the killer, and that was directed towards parents. Uh, it might reflect his own experiences, that he was kind of symbolically k- killing his parents every time he did this, This, particularly if he was a serial killer. The other thing, uh, quite often, the covering of faces uh, was talked about as being related to the denial of the, the reality of what they had just done, uh, that it was a, uh, these aren't really people, they're just kind of lumps under this thing. And it might have been that covering the face wasn't enough for the judgmental parents for the adults who would know that this was an unspeakable horror. And so they had to be erased completely. I mean, he wasn't satisfied to just cover them, but he just killing them wasn't enough. He wanted to get rid of them. I don't have any, you know, I couldn't defend those positions beyond what I've already said. Uh, one of the compelling things about the murder is that there are questions like that that remain unanswered
3: right. What were the, the theories circulating at the time about the covered mirror and the slab of bacon leaning against the wall?
1: Yeah, Th- those, um, uh, those questions are, uh, uh, I think those are really salient points of the scene. I mean, they, they say a lot about the nature of the, the murderer. Um, one it's obvious that he wanted uh, privacy. Uh, he was, It wasn't a case that he killed the people and fled. Uh, he spent time in the house. Uh, he had to find a cloth to cover the windows. He wasn't satisfied to hang cloth on the bars that kept the curtains up. Instead, he had pins that he had found somewhere or brought with him. and had pinned those curtains up so light could not escape. He pulled the shades throughout the house all the way down rather carefully to make sure that the windows were covered. I have speculated that uh, the window the mirror was covered because he was looking at, the, at uh, Lena Stillinger. He had brought her down the bed halfway. She was in uh, a display and... Uh, that mirror is right on the corner of his eye he He's standing at the foot of the bed where the lamp is, and the mirror is in the middle of the middle of the wall. It's about four or five feet up the the wall and so any movement he makes in that room will cause the the image to appear in that mirror. The flickering candle will cast shadows, so he might have covered it because of his he found it disturbing. He might have covered it because he didn't want to see himself. Uh, it was uh, he felt guilty about what he had done. Uh, those kinds of speculations. Uh, there are a lot of uh, superstitions related to mirrors that might well uh, uh, explain it. Uh, one uh, funeral customs of that time, Victorian funeral customs, oftentimes. Prescribe the covering of mirrors if there's a corpse in the house. Well, Abraham Lincoln was lying in state, and they covered all of the mirrors in the uh, uh, White House. English folk ways involve covering mirrors. Jewish groups sometimes covered mirrors, uh, whatever bodies or f- figures. But I'm more of convinced it related to the killer kind of blotting out the image. Before him, he wanted to concentrate on his own, uh, the image of his own construction. He didn't want that disturbing image in the background. Uh, and this plain outright superstition: you know, if you if you see yourself in the mirror when there's a corpse in the house, uh, you'll die within a year. If you see yourself in the mirror at midnight, you'll uh, you'll see the devil. You can check that out tonight if you want to stay up that night. Um, <laughs> The bacon is another salient feature. I mean, it's unusual. There didn't seem to be any uh, rhyme or reason to it. It came, it looks like, from their own pantry. They had a a side of bacon. Uh, This would be a piece of probably 10, 12 pounds that uh, was hanging in uh, the back pantry or in the back pantry. I wasn't sure it's hanging. But uh, the assumption has always been that it was cut from that side of bacon. Uh, sadly enough, nobody thought to match the pieces to put it back together and see if they fit, which they could have easily done, but that was not done. Um, they um, didn't have any explanation at the time at all. They Some thought it might have been it was a tramp who had come in the house and this was his kit. This was what he carried with him. So he had some food with him. Uh, but that was a pretty weak explanation. Uh, he had then gotten, forgotten it and left it, that kind of thing. It remained that way until 1917. In 1917, a state attorney general, a man named Havner, was preparing a case for trial for the murder uh, of uh, Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, who was a... Uh, visiting minister that night and was in Belisca. And he took a description of Kelly's history and he took a description of the scene and he sent that to a man named George Thacker. Thacker was the head of the Oregon Prisoner Aid Society and that was a private group that would help prisoners adjust to... uh, a civilian life when they got let let out of prison. It has now been taken over by state agencies, parole agencies, and things like that. And Thacker must have had, uh, I, I know nothing about the man other than what's in the record and uh, the Attorney General's papers, but Thacker must have had a reputation as a criminologist at the time because havener sent those um, two bodies of papers there and ask him if he saw anything that would be useful in prosecuting kelly and he um, wrote back and said the the bacon is the key factor because kelly had a long history of voyeurism he had a long history of uh, being caught peeking in windows and almost certainly his his marriage had uh, not been consummated he'd been married since uh, ninety eight I believe maybe it was ninety nine uh, but the marriage had not been consummated uh, and that was because of his impotence and um, that comes from a pretty good source by the way his wife uh, she t- she told the uh, that to the uh, county attorney who was involved in the prosecution of Kelly. Um, Anyway, he uh, he had been caught window peeking. Uh, he had a lot of sexual hang-ups, went to great lengths to uh, get young girls to take their clothes off and so on. And he said, Thacker, said that the bacon was used as an artificial vagina as he masturbated while he looked at Lena Stillinger. He didn't touch her uh, sexually. He, uh, he moved her down the bed. He didn't uh, uh, attack her directly. It was a visual attack that he was interested in. I can't. Uh, I know even less about this subject than I do about uh, pathological murder. Uh, so I can only relay to you what George Sacker thought. He was confident that the that bacon was a crucial element of the scene
3: and we will return momentarily.
0: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist?
3: The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, The audiobook. Available on Audible,
4: iTunes, and Amazon.
2: Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history.
3: And we are back. So another question I had for you uh, while absorbing all of this. When eight people are butchered in a house, one by one, you would think that someone might hear something and try to fight back, flee, scream for help. Was there any sign that anyone in the Moore home had awakened and was aware of of what had happened before they were killed.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a a very common question. That uh, uh, There are people, uh, the house is now open as a museum, and you can uh, lease the house in the evening and and spend the night there. Uh, And many, many groups and individuals who are involved in paranormal investigations and who believe in, spirits and, and ghosts and so on, uh, have done that. And many of the citizens in Villisca have asked that question about how could it physically be done without awakening anybody. And so there's some people who have speculated that people were chased down, were run down, people hid in closets and were attacked and then put in bed. But there is absolutely no reason to suspect that in the sense that there is no blood in the house. The house was was really quite neat when it was found. Uh, There was no blood trails anywhere. There was no blood splatters anywhere. Uh, All of the blood was at the heads of the bed where the victims were found. And there's no evidence of any kind of struggle in bed. Uh, There wasn't blood that was uh, drained around the bed it all was concentrated at the pillows in the uh, it soaked into the mattresses, but didn't go through the mattresses, although in Joe and Sarah's room it ran off the bed, but that blood was right at the head of the bed, like all of the rest of the victims were found. so I don't put very much credence in the idea that there were uh, chases and struggles in there. The the victims I don't think realized they had been hit. Some people thought that perhaps uh, Sarah Moore, the mother, had awakened, and the uh, the only basis for that was that her head was post oh, perhaps six inches or more, a little more down below Joe and kind of resting on his shoulder. And uh, that caused some people to think that she had might have tried to dodge the blow or slide down a little bit or something like that. Getting back to the question about how could he do it, the, the, some people immediately started speculating perhaps they were drugged. Perhaps the victims, they talked about chloroform or ether, I suppose, uh, there were five doctors who were on the scene very early. Four of them were Velisca Vill- doctors, and one of them was the county coroner who came about 9.30. The Velisca doctors were there by 8.30, quarter to 9, I suspect. And they made uh, uh, examinations of the room all of those doctors agreed there was absolutely no evidence of any kind of anesthetic, uh, anything that would have uh, knocked them out in terms of uh, chloroform or ether or anything like that. And they based that, I think, on uh, residue and odors that they would have hurt. No one has ever come up with an explanation how the killer would get them to all lie still while he administered the drug. And they've never explained how you could do that without getting a little woozy yourself, I suspect, if you had enough uh, of the drug to uh, knock people unconscious. The the other explanation is that the killer was um, hiding in a closet. That is still widely believed. The, the paranormal groups put great, uh, give great attention to the upstairs closet. There is a, a closet uh, in the upstairs. You've got the two rooms, the two bedrooms uh, and then there's a closet that opens to the east and the first perhaps four feet of that closet has been covered with um, a planking and nailed down. It's It's a solid floor and then it's just the Bear Joyce is running out over the kitchen. So there is a place that people could store things there, but they could also hide in there. And if you had no occasion to open the doors, you wouldn't know anyone was there. And that was the, uh, the origin of that story came, I think, first from Minnie Moore. Minnie Moore was a sister of the murdered man. And she worked in Omaha and got there that Monday morning, right after the murder. She got on a train, I'm sure, and came. It would probably be a an hour and a half ride from Omaha on train in that time. And uh, she speculated, well, maybe the killer hid in the closet upstairs, and then all they had to do was to come out, and they would be right at the parents' bedroom, so they could kill the parents before they. Realized what was happening. That story, that speculation was picked up by a reporter from the Kansas City Post named Hoban, H-O-B-A-N. Hoban was there the first day. Uh, he was certainly there on Tuesday, and I suspect he was there by Monday afternoon. The, San- the Kansas City Post was an offshoot of the Denver Post and it was a bit of a journalistic rag at the time uh, uh, something a little bit like uh, our current uh, newsstand or uh, supermarket uh, uh, national or that kind of thing it the tabloids
3: focused
1: on, yeah. Uh, yeah tabloids it it focused on uh, crime and political corruption it also, though, had some uh, had a lot of photographs. Even that early age, it used a lot of photographs and so on. Uh, Hoban picked up that story, and all of a sudden, it came out in an article in the Kansas City Post, and he he said he found he found a footprint, a heel print in in the closet. There were two closets. There was a closet downstairs also, and he found a cardboard. Box that was full of cotton ticking and it was scooped out like someone had been sitting or had sat on it. And there was smoke, there were smoking or tobacco materials in the closet. I would suppose that would be oh, he could have been chewing tobacco and spit on the floor. It could have been uh, a cigar butt. It could have been a uh, dustings from a pipe it could have been a cigarette although cigarettes were not very common in those days more often it would be a cigar or a pipe and a lot of people have picked up that story at the time particularly and made it a um, explanation for how the killing got got away with it the the trouble with that is that uh, none of the none of the police nor any of the doctors, all of whom looked in the closets, reported anything like that. They never saw anything that they saw that. And a, a man named Wolf, who was an undertaker, and he led the group of undertakers that did the preparation of the bodies, he had heard the story, so he went through the closet with, as he said, great care. And he said there was no heel print that he ever saw. And he said the, the box of ticking was there. He saw it, but it was sitting on two suit boxes. Well, if you know suit boxes, we don't think of much anymore, but they're about five, six inches high, and they're a real light cardboard. So that if anybody sat on a suit box, it would uh, collapse it. I mean, it, w- it would crush. And then he said that he found no evidence at all of any kind of smoking material in those closets. So my speculation is that uh, Hoban had a deadline to meet and looking for a sensational headline, and he just took many more speculation and converted it into a news story. But uh, anyway, it seems to me that uh, youngsters are much easier to explain you 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 put a youngster to bed at that age. They had a big day. They had the special program at night. They were excited with their friends. I, they they sleep the sleep of the just. I mean, they close their eyes. They're not responsible for the strange noise the furnace is making. They're not responsible for any noise in the house. Uh, they don't have to worry about tomorrow's work. Any of those things. And I have a, a daughter who is now grown. And she, um, when she was a child, we could move around the room, we could make noise, and she wouldn't move. And I suspect that happened on the, on the children, personally. The parents, much harder to explain, because they are attuned, I think, to some of those things. And uh, I talked to county attorney, Winterston, and he said, I've tried to climb no stairs every way possible. He said, I've gone up each side, I've gone up the middle, I've even tried to walk up the trim on the side of the stair where I don't even put my foot on the trundles, and uh, it uh, you just can't do it. It's a noisy staircase, and it was in 1912. The uh, movie people speculated about that some, and in uh, Velisca Living as a the Mystery, they, uh, uh, they, they wondered if it was possible that the, they, they heard the killer coming up the stairs, but chose to ignore it. Because if you think about it, you're in bed. It's an hour after you've been to bed. And all of a sudden you hear these soft footfalls coming up the steps. You, you're not, your first thought isn't, I wonder if that's an axe murderer coming after me. It's, uh oh, one of those kids can't sleep. I got to go to work tomorrow. I hope maybe if I lie still, maybe if I shut my eyes, maybe if I cover my head, if I do anything, maybe they will see I'm here and be satisfied and go back down and I can still sleep so that the killer was in the room before they the adults were even uh, even looking. So I, that that's all speculation. We don't know how the killer got around the room, uh, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that he wasn't successful in killing them all without awakening any of them.
3: Part of the problem, too, was that there were so many people who had moved through the house that evidence could easily have been altered, destroyed, uh, with or without malicious intent.
1: Yes, yes, it. Um, uh, that that was a um, people. People now are. You know, we all watch TV and we know about forensic uh, oh, criminology and all of that. Uh, none of that existed in rural Iowa in 1912. Fingerprints just coming in, it was only because it was such a spectacular murder that they were able to attract the fingerprint expert, a man named McLaughlin, by the way. He uh, uh, he wouldn't have come to just a routine murder. This This pulled him there. But uh, there, there wasn't a roll of yellow crime scene tape in the world in 1912, let alone rural Iowa. And uh, Hank Horton, who, had been, who was a, the day marshal and chief in a two-person group, he had been a farmer for a while. He, he was, did carpentry work for a while and now had been a, a marshal for something like 10 years. He was a man in his 50s. He had no training. He left the scene to go uptown to contact uh, other officials, uh, the county attorney, uh, the state attorney general. Uh, They called for bloodhounds. All of that was done by telegraph or telephone. And uh, he was there. He left a a man named Mike Overman, who was, uh, Mike was uh, 26 at the time. So he was a a young fellow. He, he didn't have the gravitas to control the crowd. They, they, there were hundreds of people came to the scene. As soon as the word spread across town, everybody, the, uh, stores closed. They closed the stores and people trooped down to the house. And the younger and bolder ones, they got up on the porch. They said there were so many people on the porch that uh, one person would climb on and somebody would have to fall off. uh, There was no more room, and they were peering in. Dr. Cooper came out and saw what was happening and saw that these people were going to creep into the house, and he said, my God, boys, don't go in there. He said, "Uh, you'll regret it for the longest day you live. Uh, You'll remember this. But then he went back uptown. He had been there twice, and he went back uptown, and they went in. Uh, Some people said uh, several went in. Some people said dozens went in. Others said hundreds went in. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that more than 100 people went through the house, probably 99% of them men. Uh, The bodies were all lying as they were found. Uh, They uh, were fated to remain there until midnight that night of the murder because the county attorney happened to be in Cedar Rapids, which was four hours, five hours away and uh, maybe more than that. And then he didn't get there until about 8 o'clock at night, just about the time the bloodhounds arrived. And so the bloodhounds went on the run, and the county coroner went with the bloodhounds, along with maybe 2,000 other people. And um, the undertakers who were preparing the bodies, they didn't feel able to... uh, leave. They didn't feel able to uh, take the bodies, and so they had to wait till the bloodhound run, and the bloodhounds came back about 11, 12 o'clock at night, and so then they finally felt they could uh, let them have the bodies, and they took them uh, midnight or a little after uh, after the murder day. Uh, But these people who went through the house, uh, one of the more bizarre stories Uh, During the week of the murder, a piece of Joe Moore's skull about the size of a cigarette package appeared in a local pool hall. And the owner of the pool hall, uh, Bert uh, McCall, he was a popular guy around town, flaming red hair, uh, lots of, uh, he had an auto livery, uh, did the driving for people, and drove like the wind, they said. He had picked it up, he said and took it as a souvenir that uh, got him into trouble later. But uh, at the time, uh, that story has been some of the paranormal people had picked up elements of that story, but they got it garbled. And they thought it happened in 1935, but it happened in 1912.
3: Yeah. Uh, So I wanted to ask you about the bloodhounds, because there is a moment that becomes very important. As the hounds are tracking scent, they stop in front of the home of a very prominent Villisca resident.
1: Yeah, there were no bloodhounds available. It caused, by the way, a rash of interest. You read the older papers, and a lot of counties, uh, cities, talked about after the murder, should it, was it advisable to buy some bloodhounds? So that they could start right away, because by the time they got there, they were in Beatrice, Nebraska, which is west, eastern Nebraska. But by the time they got arrangements made and loaded and shipped by train, a handler came with them. Uh, it was eight, eight thirty at night. It was dark, and so uh, they came into the depot. They were picked up by Bert McCall. <laughs> the guy with a piece of skull, uh, Bert um, had an auto livery, so he brought him across town. It's six, seven blocks from the depot to the house. And by that time, a crowd of, some people estimate 2,000. I I don't have any basis for judging that, but a lot of people, most of them armed with uh, shotguns, rifles, uh, pitchforks, ball bats, uh, uh, axes, everything, had gathered in the front yard, and they took the dogs into the house. They let them smell the axe, and they let them smell the cloth that the killer had uh, wiped the axe with. That, by the way, caused a general rush on the house when the bloodhounds went in, and uh, a crush of people went right with them. And so they came out. They came out on the porch. The porch runs across the south of the house, about half of the house and they went off the east side of the porch and across the yard out to the street. It would have been a dirt street in those days. And then they turned north and they went um, to the end of that block and on up to at the end of a, the second block, which was at out of town. It was at the edge of town and turned west on a, um, Alley, small street that ran uh, to the west. They followed that for two blocks and then they turned south. And as they came south, now the whole crowd is behind them. Some people were following cars as best they could, others were on horseback, and most were on foot. And so the, the handlers in front with the police and everyone else is crowding as close to them as they can. And when they came south, that took them right by F.F. Jones' house. F.F. F. Jones became a suspect very soon. People suspected him that first day. And uh, when they came by F.F. Jones' house, they stopped. And they were there for a short period of time, uh, not five minutes, more like a minute, I suppose. But it was a definite stop. The people in the back could not see what was going on because they had several hundred people between them and the event. The rumor started since Jones was already a suspect that they had tried to go into the Jones or onto the Jones property, but the handler wouldn't let them. He pulled them back. And then they continued south and turned to the west. They finally ended up. On the southwest part of town, they had met, they'd gone around the business district. They went in the residential area. And then they went down to the Nodaway River, which is a, a small stream, small river, that runs just west of the town. Uh, maybe it's half a mile west of town. And they had to cross a field or two to get to it. And uh, there they seemed to lose the trail. They were brought back and they did that same run again that night and they were brought there in the morning and they did the same run again in the morning. The um, stopping in front of Jones' house uh, was part of the case against Jones and they were arguing, people who believed he was behind it, believed that the killer stopped there and he um, he was um wealthy state senator. Sunday school superintendent in the Methodist Church, uh, had a, 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 a community leader, uh, and it would have been a case that he would have had to hire a outside killer to do it. But uh, in the testimony before the grand jury, which was didn't take place until 1917, the one, the grand jury I'm talking about, the, the there was a man named... Uh, Ed Landers. Ed Landers was an insurance salesman, had lived in a neighboring town of Shenandoah, maybe 30 miles away. His mother lived just down the street from the murder house. And he he and his family, they'd, they'd gone to California and he, he had been there for two years working in California, decided to come back and did and hadn't started his new job, but he uh, was visiting his mother. And he was quite in- interested in the case and got involved with the investigation some. And he was following the bloodhounds right at the lead of the pack. He was right behind the police when the bloodhounds went. And the bloodhounds stopped in front of the Moor House while one of them answered a call of nature. That's what actually happened. But the people in the crowd didn't know that. And I give particular credence to that because uh, Ed Landers was one of the major people in the case against Jones. His testimony was used in the slander suit that was involved, and uh, in the case that was billed against Jones, uh, Ed Landers was uh, a leading uh, uh, witness. And I think that if there had been any of the dogs trying to get into the Moore house, or the the Jones house, he would have certainly noted that, and he would have been very interested in uh, reporting it. But he was clear before the grand jury, when he was under oath, that uh, uh, they didn't uh, do anything except one of them, uh, as he put it, did his business, and then they went on.
3: Again, I have been speaking to Ed Epperly author of Fiend Incarnate, Vallisca Axe Murders of 1912. Part 2 next week. Talk to you then.